It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, this is another edition of the Ben Domenech podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and recommend it to a friend if you find it of interest. Uh, Today, I have the great Brett Baer on to outline what to expect from us at the the Fox Network on election night. Uh, I'm happy to be part of the coverage there and offering my own opinions. Uh, But Brett, obviously, is someone who's been doing this for many years, uh, you know, covering elections in a lot of different roles, and he'll be at the center of the anchor desk for our coverage on Fox News. Uh, I asked him basically how he approaches that challenge. Uh, As he says, uh, it is our Super Bowl and something that we have to prepare for and uh, be aware of the different dynamics going on all across the country. Uh, Brett's himself been able to travel the country during this election, as have I, uh, met a lot of people, listened to a lot of their concerns. And I would encourage you to listen to the way that he's going to go about approaching it with a couple of differences, uh, perhaps uh, more of a granular, you know, detail oriented look at the reason that we make certain calls. Uh, and I just appreciated him taking the time out of what is a very busy uh, period for uh, all of us in news uh, to join me today. Brett Bear coming up next. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Brett Baer, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. You bet, Ben. I know it's a very busy time when it comes to preparing for this final run to a midterm election, especially one that's as hot as this one. How do you survive and keep yourself mentally on track to follow everything at once, to pay attention to everything that's going on, having gone through so many of these? Yeah, I think this is number eight in the anchor chair. But um, so basically, it's a big team effort. It is uh, a massive uh, effort across, to get across the finish line on on election night, and it is uh, one in which you know it's essentially our Super Bowl. And you're right; there's a ton of things happening all at once, and folks are in our ears saying we're going to go from here to here, and we're going to call this and not call that, um, and it's very much free flowing. But what happens is, as you're covering this election for Special Report and for the channel throughout the, the months leading up to this, uh, there is a bit of osmosis, you know, that you kind of have a good sense of where things are, who the players are, what the issues are. And added to that, we have a great team that provides a lot of data that's at our fingertips um, that we can kind of tap into real time on election mm-hmm. night. So. Yes, it's a lot of moving parts. Um, you have to get yourself ready for it, but uh, we're ready. You know, just in terms of looking back at a previous experience, uh, what's something that you've really gained about the preparation process, something that you do just naturally now uh, to 
be aware of, you know, a particular district or a particular dynamic, something that is below maybe the radar of the national news running into an election? Yeah. First of all, I take Chad Pergram out to lunch uh, and we go over <laughs> some of the uh, real in-depth, in-the-weeds districts that uh, he sees. He knows more about Congress than than you know, he's forgotten more about Congress than most people know. Um, and so that gives you a perspective. But I also have traveled a little bit and gone mm -hmm. out and talked to some of these folks in different districts. Uh, and that has helped me get a sense of or just at least a touching base in these different places uh, to be able to talk to real people on the ground as opposed to looking at polls of what they say. I think we rely too much in the media on polls um, mm -hmm. and not enough on on where people you know are expressing themselves about what's important um, and sometimes the polls miss that uh, I think. They may have missed that in the beginning of this race. Uh, I think that it's starting to turn back really on these big issues. You know, you were on special report not too long ago and said this is looking like a bigger wave than people think it is. And I think it's a wave that broke late. But mm -hmm. uh, I think it's very possible that you may be right on election night. Well, I'm, I'm always encouraged to hear that. I hope I'm, I, I hope I'm right, typically, uh, and not giving people bad guidance. You know, I had uh, Tom Bevan on, uh, you know, obviously, another uh, regular on Special Report just uh, uh, last week. And one of the things that he was talking about was uh, their effort to compare uh, prior polling misses to this current moment. And whether you're a fan of kind of doing that or not, I do think it's it's helpful to just sort of see it, say, look, we know that some of these races, you know, Nevada, for instance, Democrats tend to overperform. But in other cases, you know, Republicans tend to overperform, particularly in the Midwest, where he identified a lot of misses. Do you feel like we have a conversation about elections that is too driven by polling numbers as opposed to conversations on the ground with people? hundred percent. And I think that was one of the lessons from 2016. I think I've told you the story that I took uh, 37 Ubers in swing states uh, getting from place to place. And at the end of those conversations, I said, you know, listen, if you're comfortable, can you tell me how you voted and or how you're going to vote? And uh, they said, sure. And 35 out of 37 said they voted for Trump. That was people of all demographics, all different backgrounds. Uh, that's something that was not in the polls that we were looking at in these swing states. Uh, in Philadelphia, as I, in 2016, was anchoring the coverage for the DNC in Philadelphia as Hillary Clinton was getting the nomination, uh, the union guys who set up the tent where we were uh, said, hey, listen, they were wearing a shirt that said, I'm with her. And I, they said, hey listen, Brett, I'm not with her. Okay. And I said, uh, okay, you know, are you alone? And they took me to a lunch area and 150 guys, he stands on the table. He says, Hey, how many of you guys with her? You know, no hands. How many of you guys with Trump? You know, 150 hands. And I said, well, can I talk to you about that on camera? And he said, uh, no, cannot because no. I will get fired. But those kind of dynamics of were not being picked up. And I learned from that election a lot. And I think um, we risk a lot when we rely on some other 
organization and how they poll people because we're we're not we're getting worse not better at getting mm-hmm. polls right we'll see how it comes this time but that's how it's been the last three times one of the things that we saw in 2010 and obviously in 1994 before that was that uh, in a wave election like this there are a bunch of unexpected results things that kind of come out of nowhere at the end where you're surprised that someone ends up uh, uh, winning or someone ends up losing in a race that people didn't think was that close, maybe until the last few days. It seems like we're going through that dynamic again this time. I've had Republicans approach me on the street and say, you know, ask about Washington State, ask about New Hampshire and the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, how seriously do you take those kinds of, of predictions when it comes to these waves? How do you prepare yourself uh, to deal with them and to understand them? Given that, you know, for a lot of the assumptions that are based in Washington, something like that shouldn't happen, you know, where the incumbent should have the natural advantage and be able to win. I think, you know, a lot of these things up until Election Day, you start to look at races that were lean Democrat um, that maybe are becoming more toss ups. And you mentioned two of them, New Hampshire and Washington. Um, Washington at one point was likely Democrat. I think it's lean Democrat now, but it's actually closing in the final days, as is New Hampshire. And so you start to get a sense, I think, before Tuesday with a final gut check of races that potentially, if Republicans have more than a ripple, uh, that that they those are races that you might say go that way. I think what would be more surprising on election night is if uh, Democrats you know, get the margin in the House to 10 or 12, um, that would be a bad night for Republicans looking at the current environment. I think mm-hmm. a, a good night for Republicans is in the 20s in a House pickup, and a great night is in the 30s, and a r- ridiculous night is in the 40s. And that's not out of the realm of pop- possibility. So mm-hmm. when you go in, you've got this parameter, I think, that gives you a sense Um each race is different, though, as you know, Ben, and it, it comes while you can look at early races and say this could be indicative of a wave. There could be personalities and things that change uh, and pickoffs that Democrats are able to make uh, in individual races. You've observed a number of White Houses, obviously, closely and the, their media teams, the way that they approach the challenges of things like midterm elections. I confess that I am flabbergasted at the way that this White House has approached this midterm with, it seems to me, a message over the past couple of months that has been pretty consistent and really hasn't done much to protect a lot of Democrats in difficult, you know, rural or evenly divided, you know, or Trump adjacent, you know, uh, sort of lean right seats and even their own sort of seats where uh, where Joe Biden prevailed. With some message uh, better than essentially vote for us or democracy is at risk, uh, vote for us, uh, or it means that you've you've given up on America, which seemed to be the kind of thing President Biden was saying just the other night. Why do you feel like this White House has approached it this way? Is there a better tactic that they could have taken over the past couple of months to maybe ride a little bit of that blue backlash wave that we saw post the Dobbs opinion? 
You know, I think when you started to see uh, former President Obama, for, former President Clinton get on the trail and start talking about Social Security and Medicare, which is the classic, you know, close for Democrats that Republicans are going to take it away or chop it or slash it. Um, I think that that message was late. You know, they, they saw a giant hope electorally with the abortion ruling and thought that that's where they should put all their the eggs in the basket. But the mode of the country, while that's very important, and I don't want to discount that in some races that it could make a, a big difference, I think that the economy and inflation obviously affects people when you're sitting at the kitchen table and you're saying, how are we going to make, make ends meet and how are we going to pay for groceries? And uh, I think that that economic message is coming late. So I think the White House uh, could have done that better. The messenger is also a problem for the White House and and the president's ability to deliver the message effectively, cogently, uh, I think is in question in some of these these um, events, which is why he's not getting invited to the swingiest of swing states. He's going to Maryland and New Mexico and uh, places where they're a little bit safer. Lastly, I do think that this democracy pitch is is one of the things that they're holding on to because there has to be polling uh, internally that shows them that it moves some. I will tell you anecdotally that I'm here in Miami. I talked to a lot of voters today. Uh, most of this is trending red, uh, even Hispanics in and uh, in Miami-Dade County, which is really interesting to watch. But I did meet some voters who were Republican or independent where that message about the threat to democracy actually resonated. And so, I, you know, you can think there has to be some data that backs some of this up. Yeah. Otherwise, they're just throwing stuff against the wall. I saw a couple of interviews where that actually happened. At least they're paying attention to it. You know, I mean, one example of this obviously has to be uh, former President Obama just the other day. Uh, Politico has a report out about his speech uh, today, you know, talking about Arizona and the lineup that they have there. Uh, and base and he gives a, a pretty, you know, harsh message on saying, you know, democracy is at risk if you elect these people and that kind of thing. Uh, but just as a newscaster, as someone who, you know, has to cover this as it's happening, you know, how are you going to respond how do you plan to respond or prepare for it to inevitably, you know, on election night, there's going to be some people who just don't accept the result, who yeah. who don't or who predict, you know, some kind of, of uh, you know, inaccuracy or fraud or something like that. How do you deal with that in the moment when, you know, the evidence that we would have for that is based is non-existent? There's no reporting to kind of uh, go on. It's just a campaign's claim. But I feel like that's probably going to happen. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's going to happen uh, looking at our current environment. Yeah. Um, you know, we're going to go – first of all, we're going to be cautious. We want to be uh, first, obviously, but most importantly, we want to be right. Um, just for you, you know, there's a lot of focus on Arizona and our our call last time as we were the only network that was, was out on that call um, and – as the numbers in Arizona were going from 80,000 spread to 10,000 spread, and there were people saying it was an early call. Just for the record, that call, the voting had ended. There were 70-plus percent of the vote in, and the analytics for the decision desk had gotten to that call, and they made the call. 
there was concern about it as the margin shrunk and you know should we be with the other networks um, mm -hmm. where they were in a safe territory uh, or should we be out where we were we stuck by the call and it was the right call but uh, it is an also a lesson and it, it provides us this you know you want to factor in a lot of things about having enough raw vote total and making sure you know, we are transparent in the way that we make these calls and so that the viewing audience understands where this is coming from. Uh, I don't think we're going to be making calls that are super tight, uh, mm -hmm. even if the voter analysis that is really, really good uh, is suggesting that the spread is is larger than we're looking at. I think it's going to be a cautious time and there's going to be some races that won't get called on that night. Uh, the question is whether there are enough races to, to make a determination on the balance of power in the House and the Senate. And, you know, looking at it now, it's, it's possible that we could make those calls that night. I think one of the things that you just said there that's so important is, is transparency. Because I think a lot of people don't understand the challenge of making calls in an environment where you're dealing not with an election day, but an election month where votes are coming in at certain times and you don't entirely know what the totals are going to be necessarily. Uh, it's not clear until you actually have that count. Uh, and for people viewing that at home, you know, they view the, the uh, Chiron at the bottom uh, with a red and a blue line as essentially being a scoreboard. And so they're shocked when they see a score shift in certain ways, uh, just in terms of helping people to understand what they're actually viewing uh, is is there a way to go about that that sort of uh, lets them know, look, what you're seeing here is not necessarily reflective of even what the total vote is going to turn out to be yeah. in many of these states? We're going to do a much better job of that this time, uh, I think. I'm going to try to do that. Uh, we are probably going to, at the beginning of the night, lay it out more about how we make these determinations, how the decision get, desk gets to different calls. Um, we have this voter analysis that is outside of exit polling. It's like supercharged. It's already in the field. Um, it is a total of almost 500,000 voters mm -hmm. and you extrapolate in each state. Um, it's a much bigger sample than any polling outfit you would ever see. Uh, and that, in addition to the raw vote total, in addition to what we know about different states, all factors in. We're going to try to lay that out and not get too wonky, but show people enough to say, this is where this decision is coming from. And if there's a reason that we're not making a call, we're going to call the decision desk guys on and say, why are we not making a call? Here's why. This county went you know, blue X number of times, Bill at Hammer at the board, show us what this means. And we're going to try to get a little bit more granular because the audience is smart and mm -hmm. we don't take that for granted. Uh, I think people enjoy that better than just hearing this is the call. This is not the call. I, compl I completely agree. People are in it to a much more granular level than they ever were before. Uh, one question uh, about the outcome. Let's assume for the sake of argument that Republicans do prevail when it comes to the House, that they do, you know, perhaps narrowly win the Senate. So you've got a majority leader, McConnell, again, and you've got a speaker, Kevin McCarthy, uh, assuming everything goes according to his plans. 
there have been a number of Republican speakers swept in by midterm waves. Uh, you've known and interviewed many of them, and they are often not long for the hall after they right. do that. Um, we saw Newt's experience. We saw the John Boehner experience. We saw the Paul Ryan experience. What do you think the challenge is for Republicans who are going to be elected basically with on a set of issues that they, you know, tend to like, you know, uh, on on border issues, on economy issues, inflation issues, crime issues and the like uh, to be able to actually do something about things beyond just investigating Hunter Biden's laptop or something yeah. like that? So I think the reason Leader McCarthy went with the commitment to America uh, was not really about campaigning or a brochure. It was more to get all of his members to sign on to an agenda so that they have a blueprint that there are going to be people on the fringes that say we should go for impeachment right now based on on immigration. We should go to, you know, there's going to be all kinds of folks saying all kinds of things if and when they get control. And he will say, listen, we agreed to this. We're going to do this first and we're going to have these investigations as well. Uh, I think there is, you know, hope in a divided government that you could get to something where they actually make a negotiation with a president that would have to sign it, you know, because mm -hmm. you still have a veto pen at the White House, even if you have a House and Senate in Republican control. And while there will be investigations and there will be votes that go nowhere to set up political battles to come, uh, the hope is that you could actually get some things that help the American people, for example, oil. Uh, or yeah. energy or uh, well there's a number of fronts immigration that that they could actually agree on and get people in the Senate to sign on not just Republicans but also Democrats and uh, but there will be those investigations and he's I think he's listed a few of them he, he said uh, the border Afghanistan and um, something else but it wasn't Hunter Biden Hunter Biden will be in there guaranteed uh, a final question for you, Brett, uh, just in terms of your own personal preparation for the amount of, of time that you're going to have to spend on the air mm -hmm. and be coherent and be attentive and track everything. What is your level of caffeine of, uh, <laughs> that you typically take on an election night? Yeah. And how do you take it? Uh, or do you just, you know, do you sleep in a, you know, uh, uh, in some kind of chamber for like two days to try <laughs> to prep for it? Like, like no. some of these NFL players or yes. something like that. I do. Uh, I do drink a lot of caffeine on election night uh, and some Red Bull every now and then. But I do try to get an exercise exercise in before that day. Uh, elections are really good for me. I drop some LBs usually. Mm -hmm. Um and so I really need elections every two years to get my, you know, body weight uh, back in check. But uh, I, I also think that those nights the adrenaline does run heavy, and uh, so it, it lasts for a long time. Uh, and you got to pace yourself uh, because it probably is not just an election night; it's election several nights, uh, and it's it's an awesome responsibility, and I, I love it. It's um, I, I take it as serious as we can, but we have a lot of fun with it too. Uh, I think the panel is, is going to be a lot of fun, uh, to, to be on election night in this moment when there are so many big things happening that affect people at home 
directly. And that's what we all really work for is to be in the center of that, uh, that seat. Well, um, millions and millions of Americans will be, will be tuning in. And I certainly appreciate your idea of an election-based uh, diet approach. I can use that myself. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much, uh, Brett, for taking the time to join me today. You bet, Ben. More of the Ben Dominich podcast right after this. I want to take a moment to just uh, plant an idea in your head, and it's based on an article that I have uh, up today at The Spectator. You can go to the spect- to spectatorworld.com to find it, uh, and it focuses on what I believe is an interesting way of looking at what's going on with this election. A lot of people who are in kind of the middle of ide- the ideological space have said to me over the past couple of weeks, I just don't get why the Democrats are closing with this message. Why are they finishing up with this message on uh, democracy in danger and fear mongering and things like that, or, or just denying the levels of concern among Americans about crime or about inflation, you know, suggesting that these are all just kind of things that are out of their control, not really running on any kind of record, et cetera, et cetera. Basically, why is Karine Jean-Pierre acting the way she is? Why is Joe Biden acting the way she is? Uh, he is. Uh, why is uh, Ron Klain uh, acting the way that he is? And one of the things that I have said to my friends in different ways uh, over the course of this past month is, well, I think it's just, you know, a White House that is overwhelmingly driven uh, by paying too much attention to social media. They haven't been paying as much attention to the concerns of actual working Americans. And the contrast that I put in place is between the kitchen tablet and the kitchen table. There are people who turn on or keep on their screens and devices when they're sitting down to eat. Even, you know, many of them don't even do the sit down around the table anymore. But for the vast majority, actually, of families in America, they report, and this is a CBS poll from just last year, uh, that they turn off their devices, they turn off their phones, they turn off texting and email and screens and everything else when they sit down to dinner at the kitchen table. There are kitchen table concerns. Obviously, it's a term in politics that has been around since the 1980s. Uh, it's uh, you know something that has you know is typically used to describe the common concerns of working Americans about the day to day, about how they're going to afford to pay the rent how they're going to afford the groceries that they need, the kids' schedule for the next day, the schools and and everything that you have to do, the sports, the music lessons and the like, and, of course, paying the bills and all the other concerns that go on the normal working two-parent household. That's something that I think uh, is still true of the vast majority of Americans. But if you go online and you spend your life online, then even as you're eating your meal, even as you're, you know, uh, pretending to pay attention to what your kids are saying, you're still in that online world. You're still surrounded by people who are not your family telling you what matters most. And what does that sound like from the perspective of social media? Well, I think we know what it sounds like. It sounds like woke leftism when it comes to pronouns and transgender issues. It sounds like uh, Ukraine and uh, and foreign policy related issues. It sounds like uh, concerns about climate change and the need for more green energy and the like. What it doesn't sound like is crime or the economy 
or inflation or any of these fundamental issues that time and again, for most working Americans, are of significant concern. If you are in the Biden White House, it seems to me you're a lot more likely to be a kitchen tablet person than a kitchen table person. And I think that that's part of what's going on here. It explains a lot about the way that they've approached this election and their closing arguments within it. I don't think that they really understand how much hardworking Americans, including many who voted for Joe Biden last time around, a lot of white suburban college educated women, are breaking with the left and the Democratic agenda because they understand the differences that are between the priorities of Democrats and the priorities of their household. To put it simply, I think that if you're online, if you're on your kitchen tablet, then you think that abortion was the dominant issue in this election. And I think that you're, if you're at the kitchen table with your screen turned off, then you understand the bigger problem is that diapers have gone up in cost by, according to Bloomberg, 180% since Joe Biden took office. I'm Ben Dominich. This has been another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.